0: hi my name is steve captain i'm one of the missionaries here at all souls church and for about 14 years my family and i served in nepal then we shifted in malaysia for another five and a half years and when the pandemic hit we moved back to los angeles and now we're here until god says otherwise so it's a pleasure to preach to you from god's word And I'm going to be reading from Genesis 23 and 24. So let's read that together. I won't be reading all those chapters, just some select verses. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury the dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. And all the way down to verse 19, After this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And in chapter 24 we begin, Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, The oldest of his household, who had charge of everything he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Lahoiroi, and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. She took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all these things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together before we begin. Lord, Heavenly Father, I ask that you would do what only you could do, that your Holy Spirit would light up your word and you would even speak between my words to each and every one of our hearts and show us how this word of yours applies to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like you couldn't go on? I know I felt that way a number of times. You probably did as well. I remember my very first assignment in Nepal. I was trekking in the Himalayas, passing out gospel literature to the various Nepalese in the various villages that I met, some of them were up way high on the mountain. And as I was coming down the mountain, I wrenched my knee. And it was very painful. It was so painful that even on the flat surface, I could feel the pain with every step. And after the third step or so, the pain shot up into my brain. It felt like two knives just jabbing into me. And I'm sorry to say, I grabbed all that gospel literature, slammed it to the ground, let out a few choice words, not my finest moment. And I looked ahead and I saw my trekking partner. He was way ahead, but he looked back at me. He smiled, no judgment, but I judged myself. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I am the worst missionary on the planet and it's time to go home and I was ready to give up. Um, but I reflected back on my life, back to when I was 15 years old, right at this very church even on a, on a mission trip. And the Lord spoke to me and I agreed with him that I would do anything he wanted to me to do, anytime and anywhere. And as I reflected on that, I got angry. And I thought, that kid had no idea what he was talking about when he agreed to that. And I argued with God a little bit, but I decided to to lean into what he told me back in that moment. And I continued on. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. I I think we've all felt that way in some ways, that idea that I can't go on, especially with God, right? Um, We're lying down, we're we're depressed, maybe we're not doing well at work or school or something else, and we just want to stop. And that is exactly where Abraham finds himself here. Um, In this passage, in these two chapters, I want to talk about three love stories. And the first is the love story of Abraham and Sarah. And it's evident that he genuinely loved his wife because it says that he was grieved when she passed away. Probably felt like he couldn't go on. And I imagine that it began to reflect on his His life with Sarah, it was not all a bed of roses. There were times when he did not treat her that well, and it probably haunted him. Times when he lied about her very identity as his wife, and other men were taking advantage of her. Not his finest moment either. And I imagine he felt horrible, and he felt like he couldn't go on. But notice uh, the scriptures here in the ESV. It says he stood up. I like the the NIV, it just says he got up. He didn't stay wallowing in his misery, but he got up and he reminded himself of the promises of God. And he lined up under that and chose to cooperate and then lean into the things that, that God had for him. And he did this in front of the Hittites. These were um, people that were native to the land. They owned the land. This was the land that God had promised him. But as Abraham does this, I imagine he's also thinking, Sarah's gone. All I have is Isaac. And the fulfillment of this promise is looking pretty grim. It's not looking good. And in the past, when he found himself in situations like this, where the promises of God are not looking really good, with Sarah, they would not line up under the way God wanted to do things, but they went their own way. They decided to fill fulfill God's purposes, his covenant, their own way, first by Abraham getting together with um, one of his slaves and having a child with her. Again, not a fine moment for Abraham and Ishmael was born. And then of course, he tried to do other things in his own way and Sarah did as well. But this time, things are different. We're coming out of chapter 22, where Abraham had just sacrificed Isaac Figuratively speaking, as a type of Christ, and received him back from the dead, figuratively. He learned, finally, that, you know what? We need to do things God's way, no matter what. And it seems like in that moment that he said, I'm done. I am not going to take matters into my own hands anymore. God, it's up to you. I am just going to wait on you to do something. And he waited decades. And God did nothing. And isn't that the way we approach the promises of God in our life? If God's too slow, we either do nothing and we keep waiting or we get anxious and we start making our own plans and we devise our own way of doing things. But here, Abraham has finally learned his lesson. He's not gonna wallow in misery. He's not gonna continue to do nothing, but he got up. He lined himself up with the purposes of God And then he leaned in and did something. He wasn't doing something in his own way, but he's decided to do something in cooperation with God, God's way, and he does it in front of all the Hittites. And he says, as the scriptures go on, he says, I want you to sell me a piece of the land so I can bury my wife. And when he did that, culturally, he enacted a legal process. To buy this land. Now, I don't know where the Hittites were with all this, how much they knew about Abraham. I imagine they heard the stories that God had promised all the land to Abraham. Rumors kind of spread that way. And I imagine them saying, "Uh, No, we're not going to sell him any land. And so they still honored Abraham when they said no, but they did it this way they said, Abraham, we'll give you the land. You can have it for nothing. Go ahead, give it to me. But Abraham wasn't gonna do that. In an honor-shame culture, like in the Middle East, it's it's very common not only to haggle, but to um, approach things in an indirect manner. And that's what's happening here. This Hittite is saying, hey, you know what? I, I give it to you. Don't worry about it. But in these cultures, when you give someone a gift, there are strings attached. There are obligations involved. And we don't know what would happen. Abraham didn't know what happened. He didn't know what favors would be called upon him um, in return for this gift of the land. Not only that, the land wouldn't be his. It would still belong to the Hittites. And at any time, they could take it back and he would have nothing. And there would be no inheritance for him or for his son or for his son's children. But God had promised him this land. So instead of uh, kind of bowing down to the culture, he does something countercultural, And he lines up with the purposes of God, and he leans in, and he says, no, we're going to do this God's way. So he bows down before all of them, and he says, please listen to me, please. I, I, please talk to Ephron, the Hittite, who was there among them. And he said, sell me a piece of the land. And then Ephron stands up and he says, I hear you. I hear you. Um, What is 400 shekels between me and you? That's the price that Ephron was proposing to Abraham to buy the field of Mamre and the cave of Machpelah to give you an idea. What 400 shekels is worth King David. uh, He purchased the threshing floor for the temple for only 50 shekels of silver. So what does that say about the worth of this land? We don't know, but it's at this point that culturally haggling should begin and they should be going back and forth and knock down the price of the land. And What does Abraham do? He says, I'll do it. He doesn't even haggle. He doesn't even bargain. And he pays the full price and he weighs it out. Why? We don't know. We can only speculate. But perhaps it's because he thinks in his mind, Sarah is worth it. I'm not gonna haggle for my wife. And I'm not gonna haggle for the price, for the purposes and promises of God. See, when we line up and lean in to the purposes of God, there's often a cost. And if you're like me, you you don't really wanna pay that cost. You want it for free. But if we do that, there are often other obligations that we have to fulfill that do not line up with the purposes of God. And so this is Abraham and Sarah's love story. It wasn't always rosy. It wasn't always perfect, but it ended in honor. It ended in honor with Abraham honoring Sarah and God honoring Sarah as well. But this moves us into the second love story that we want to talk about. See, God had promised Abraham land. And when he purchased this, when he weighed out that silver in front of everyone, it was a done deal. It was a legal contract. He owned a piece of the land. Now he didn't have all the land, but now lining up and leaning into the purposes of God, he's got a piece of it. He's beginning to see the fulfillment and he has set up himself and the generations after him on a trajectory towards fulfillment of God's promises. But that's not enough. He's thinking about his son, Isaac, who's still single. And he said, God did not just promise me land, but he promised that a nation would be birthed out of me. And not only that, but that, um, that the promised one would come through this nation and through these generations. So Abraham has a conversation with his servant and brings him into this process of lining up with the purposes of God and leaning in to cooperate with God to fulfill those purposes. This may be Eleazar, the same servant that was kind of, you know, cheated or jipped out of the inheritance when uh, Abraham went his own way and went into his servant and his servant gave birth to his other servant, by the way, gave birth to Ishmael. And so he lost out on the inheritance to Ishmael and then to Isaac. So this servant, he could be bitter. He could be thinking, you know what? I'm not going to cooperate with what Abraham wants to do, or I'm going to drag my feet. I'm not going to do anything. But he joins Abraham in resisting cultural pressures to do things his own way. And he lines up with the will of God and he leans in. He allows Abraham to delegate through him. So they have this conversation and he talks to Eleazar, and he says, I, I need a wife for my son. And where I served in Nepal, it was very common to do things like this, uh, arranged marriages. My wife is Nepali, by the way, and I, it was not culturally appropriate for me to go directly to her and say, hey, I'm interested in you. I'd like to marry you. Of course, we knew we liked each other. Um, we, you know, we, we knew who we were, but uh, in order to ask for a hand in marriage, it was appropriate that I go through her pastor or through another family member. And that's what we have here. Abraham is saying, I want you to go find a wife for my son Isaac, but I don't want you to find her a wife here among the Canaanites. I want you to go to my family, back to my village where I came from. And find a wife for me there hey that sounds all good to Eliezer but he has some questions he says suppose um, suppose I go there and I find the perfect wife for Isaac and she doesn't want to come back and the family says bring Isaac here and he needs to stay and live there what should I do and Abraham says no don't do that don't do that I want you to swear to me that you will not find a wife for my son from the Canaanites here, and you will not leave him there. And the oath that they took together is, is intense. The scriptures say that, that he asked Eleazar to put his hand on his thigh, but that is a, a euphemism to say the least. What he meant was to put his hand on his genitals. And so they did that to each other, and they took this oath, and they said, I swear. And this kind of kind of gives a picture of what's at stake. It is the future generations. My posterity is at stake here. And so he invokes his own covenant with Eleazar to bring Eleazar to line up with the covenantal promise of God. And that covenantal faithfulness, as we're going to see later in the passage, is the Hebrew word hesed. It is God's loving faithfulness. It is covenant faithfulness that we're talking about. So um, this raises some questions. What's the problem with getting a wife from the Canaanites? Well, that would be Abraham's way of doing it himself again, doing it what might be kind of a, a no brainer culturally. Get away from here. You know, these people love you. It's great. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, some, some commentators say that the reason uh, Abraham does not want to get a Canaanite wife is because they worship other gods. And that, that's true they do worship other gods. But that was also true about his people back home. And he said, I don't want Isaac to stay there. I want you to get a wife from there, but I don't want him to stay there. Though his family and his clan in that region, they knew who Yahweh was, they knew about Yahweh. They may have even known about uh, Yahweh's promise to Abraham. But as we'll see next week and in the coming chapters, they still worshiped other gods also. So here with the Canaanites, I, I don't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman because um, his children and the offspring Austri- spring might get tangled up with these other gods and that could happen if we leave him with my people as well. But there's a larger reason for the Canaanites. The land had been promised to Abraham and his descendants and it was made clear by God that the Canaanites had been rejected by the land. And so there was no way to fulfill the promise of God by Abraham trying to do it his own way like he had in the past. Uh, Couldn't have this mixing of people there. So So they made a covenant with each other and they swore no wife from here and no wife from back there. Do not send Isaac back there. I'm never going back there. He proved that by by dying and being buried with his wife, Sarah, in the cave of Machpelah. And so Abraham says, in, in, in a sense, move forward. We don't move back. We're always moving forward with God's promises and we're not moving back. So the servant says, okay, uh, but he understands that this is an impossible task. He understands, like we do, that doing things God's way is basically impossible. And he says, look, this girl, she may not come back with me. There's going to be all kinds of problems, this, that, and the other. And Abraham says, don't worry. You don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to do it with your own resources. God's angel will travel with you and ensure that you are successful. And that's comforting. Um, and that seems to be what happened. This is a description of what happened in this love story of Isaac and Rebekah. I don't know if it happens for all of us. I like to think that it does. And that's encouraging. Uh, If we're single, um, those of us that were married, we were single at one time. When we're single, we can get stressed out by wondering, am I going to find the right one? Does God even want me to get married? But there's some encouragement knowing that if we line up under the purposes of God and lean in to what God has for us, he's with us in that. Does that mean he's literally going to send an angel to make sure that we find the one that he has for us? I can't say that he will do that, but I can say with confidence that God has a specific purpose for your life. And if he has a marriage partner in mind for you, then that spouse is also part of that purpose for you. It's a purpose that comes together for both of you. For those of us that are already married like Abraham and Sarah, we've had our ups and downs. And when we're down, (laughs) it's tempting to wonder, God, what is going on? Did I make a mistake? God, were you really in this? Were you really in this? And it's important to reflect back upon how God brought us together and to look for his hand in that. I remember when um, I met Anju, she was just another girl. I didn't think anything about it. I was single, I was stressed out about being single, and I was tired of it. And I said, God, I don't want to be single anymore. Let's make this happen. So I made a list, I actually made a list of girls, and there were five girls on this list. And I said, I am going to fast, and I'm going to make this happen. Now, I know when I've done this in different contexts and youth groups around the world, I share this that I had a list of five girls that I'm praying and thinking about, and I can see the girl's eyes. They're shaking their heads and they're like, man, that's, that's sad, that's, that's kind of disgusting. And then my eyes kind of drift over to the guys and they're sitting there counting and they're like, only five, bro, only five options? That's, that's sad, that's disgusting. <laughs> but as I pressed in, as I lined up and leaned into the promises of God, I decided that I was gonna fast and we're gonna figure this out. And here's what happened. Um, I went to a Bible study and we're praying and we're worshiping. And this woman stood up, she was very gifted prophetically and she spoke out and she said, there are a lot of people here concerned about marriage. That's a safe thing to say in a room full of single people. But then what she said next blew me away. She said, for the person here who is fasting about who they should be with. I want to say this to you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, please don't say my name. Please don't say my name. And she said, God wants you just to relax. Pursue him during this time. And I thought, you know what? That's wise advice. That's wise advice. So I did that. I lined up with God. I I leaned in. I prayed and I fasted just to get to know God better. And at the next Bible study, I'm praising God, I'm worshiping, and I, I feel his presence descend upon me. I knew he wanted to say something to my heart. The only time that ever happened before was when he called me to the mission field to Nepal. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna listen. God, what do you have for me? And as bizarre as this sounds, this is what happened. In my mind's eye, I saw a bunch of pictures, almost like a PowerPoint of what God wanted to do for me, his purposes for me in Nepal in the future. And it overwhelmed me. I said, okay, stop. That's enough. That's enough. And those things actually happened over the next five years. But I remember what I prayed to God in that moment. I said, God, this is awesome. I'm so glad you called me to something. You have a purpose for my life. What does that have to do with marriage? And in my heart, I heard his voice speak, you can marry Anju. I was like, Anju, she's not on the list. Who is Anju? And then I remembered who she was. And I was like, is this really from God? And then I had to decide to walk by faith in that. So even in my lowest moments, whether that's in pursuing the purposes of God or my relationship with with Anju, my wife, I reflect on who God is, what he's done for me, who I am in him. And that reminds me to keep going to line up with his purposes and and to lean in for what he has for me. And so as we look at the servant, he decides to do the same thing. And he travels to Abraham's village and he sets up this test for God, not to test God concerning. Is it his will that I do this particular task or task or not, but instead to determine who is the one that you have for Isaac. And here was his impossible task. He sits by the well because he knows all the young women are going to come there to draw water. And it would be culturally appropriate for them to come and offer him water. And he said, that's not enough. I'm looking for the woman who will also water my camels. And he traveled with 10 camels for a few days and they were thirsty. A thirsty camel can drink about 25 gallons of water in one sitting. So whoever is going to draw this water is going to draw 250 gallons of water. And lo and behold, there's this girl who offers to do just that. And the servant says, oh my gosh, is she the one? I can't believe. She, not only did she show hospitality, but she went above and beyond the normal cultural expectations of hospitality. And she's a hard worker. He's so impressed by her work ethic that he gives her a a bracelet, a nose ring, and some gifts before he even talks about marriage. And then he asks, what family do you belong to? And he finds out that she is a close relative of Abraham. And it is at that point that he drops down, praises God, and he says, this is it. This is the one. She doesn't even wait. She runs back to the village. She shows everybody what's going on. Her brother Laban, we're going to hear more about him uh, next week, he runs back to the man and he says, Hey, where are you staying? Come, stay with us. And so he goes there and he also does something countercultural. Normally, according to culture, you're going to have the meal. They kind of know why you're there, but they have the meal and, and they have maybe some dancing, some singing, some wine, some other things. And then they talk business about what you want and why you're there. The servant, Eleazar, he doesn't do that. He breaks protocol and he says, before we eat, I want to talk to you about why I'm here. And he talks to them about Abraham. He reveals who he is. He talks about his test with Rebecca and said she fulfilled that test. And he said, I know God's angel is in this and he's orchestrating everything. And as he made his case, he also mentioned that uh, that Abraham was very rich and that he had one son, Isaac, and Isaac was going to inherit everything. Well, the family listens to this. And Laban and his father, Rebecca's father, they conclude, this has to be God. This has to be God. And they say, yes, let's do this. So the marriage has been agreed upon. And the servant, he gives gifts, more gifts to Rebekah. This is the dowry this time. And he gives gifts to the family. Everybody's happy. And they said, yeah, she's going to go with you. And so it seems like the family has also lined up with the covenant promises of God. And even Eliezer, the servant, he uses that language. He says, if you have found uh, Abraham to be faithful and you believe the story, please be kind and faithful. And it's that word covenant faithfulness to my master and let Rebecca go. And they say, Sure, we'll do that. Then comes the morning. And he wakes up, and the first thing he does is say, Hey, Where's Rebecca? Let's go. And the family starts to drag their feet. And they say, well, no. See, culturally, she should stay with us for about 10 days or so. And, uh, and who knows if that 10 days would have stretched out to longer than that. Some commentators think so. It could be. We don't know this. But it could be that what they were hoping is that Isaac would come there. And if you remember, if you remember, Isaac made the servant promise and swear an oath that that would not happen that that would not happen and so um, the tension rises and there's a lot of different cultural things at play but of course culturally it would be expected that the servant acquiesces and says okay i'll go back and then i'll bring isaac here and then we'll go from there but he doesn't do that he says no I need to take her now. And the family says, "Oh my goodness, how are we going to resolve this?" And they said, "Let the girl decide." And they bring Rebecca. And this brings us to our third countercultural response. Culturally, Rebecca would probably just go with what her family says and says, "Yes, I need to stay here. I need to be with my family." There may have been some ceremonial things that she needed to go through, but instead, Rebecca also lines up with the purposes of God and leans in. She's heard the stories about Abraham and the covenant and who Isaac is. And she says, I'll go and I'll go now. So Rebecca decides to go with Eleazar, go with the servant back to where Abraham is in the land of Canaan. And I thought I would read chapter 24, verses 62 to 67. So we are tuned into what happens next to remind us. So now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roi and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. She took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So it's interesting. There are a lot of things going on here. By faith, Rebekah went with the servant to go meet a total stranger and marry him. And we already saw in the previous chapter that Isaac was a type of Christ and figuratively died, rose from the dead. If that is so, then Sarah figuratively is a type for the church, a type for us. And this brings us to the third love story we want to talk about. The first was Abraham and Sarah, the second is, is Isaac and Rebekah, and the third, of course, is Christ and the church. And it's interesting in the culture back then, um, I found it interesting anyway, that Sarah had her own tent. Abraham had his tent. They lived in separate tents. And Sarah was the matriarch of the entire clan, the most important woman in the clan. And now she's gone. It's as if she died and things are all out of alignment. And we need to line back up with the purpose of God and lean in to make sure that this is fulfilled. And Abraham, the servant, and even Rebecca did this in a countercultural way. And now Isaac meets her and he just falls in love. Love at first sight, it seems to be. And he brings her into the tent of his mother and marries her there. Which seems strange, but now this tent probably would be like a house for us now belongs to to Rebecca, and she takes her place as matriarch of the clan. She is now the most important person in the clan. See, the dowry and the gifts and everything else, that was just a down payment. Now she has the full inheritance. And this is what happens for us. It reminds me of John 14, verses 2 to 3, when Jesus says to his followers, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, wouldn't I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself where I am so that you may be there also. See, that, that is the love story. Jesus coming down from heaven to us, living the life that we could not perfectly lined up with the purposes of God at all times. And when it got hard at the cross, he leaned in, died for you and me, rose again from the dead, and he promises to return. In the meantime, He is preparing this place for us. So just like when Rebecca crossed over into the tent and she instantly stepped into this position as matriarch of the clan, we also instantly step into certain things when we come to Christ. In fact, theologian Lewis Sperry Schaefer says that when we come to Christ, there are instantly 33 things that change in our life. We become a child of God. We're forgiven. We move from darkness to life. We get the full inheritance. I encourage you to look him up and look at all 33 of these things. But even these 33 things, they're like the dowry and the gifts that Rebecca received. They're the down payment. Of the full inheritance that we will one day receive. And if we look at the life of Abraham, he was knocked down by the death of Sarah. Things were dark, but he didn't stay down. He got back up again, lined up with the purpose of God and leaned into his promises. For you, I don't know what God has promised you. Every purpose that each and every one of us has is unique to us. But I do know that God has promised that there is a place for you. And these 33 things that change right now in your life, these are the things that we can lean into. The more we lean into who we are in Christ, the more true the reality becomes for us here. And one day, everything that Christ has for us will be given to us in its fullness. That's his promise to us. Let's line up with that purpose and lean into it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, um, for me, these are encouraging words. The fact that you have a place for us, that you have promised a full inheritance for us, that you are not only our king, but you're also our husband and you're coming for us. And we as the church, we are your bride and you have a place for us. Lord, I repent of the times that I get out of alignment, that I try to do things my own way, that I try to, to uh, form my own identity instead of lining up with what you say about me and leaning into that. Give us all, Lord, the resources to do that. Pour your Holy Spirit into us. Remind us of who we are and that you have a place for us. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, oh,